0: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And any time is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
1: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.
0: com compatibility
4: welcome back jesus, robert, christ. Robert, jesus, christ, jesus christ jesus no, christ sophie jesus christ no no we're running all of this is the podcast every single bit of also
2: this. it's not welcome back if it's a new episode that's from an ad break hi robert
4: sophie robert. this is behind the bastards easily our worst opening
2: no definitely our again, worst opening because worst of sophie opening was hitler from like two weeks ago
4: that might have been our best. Oh, my God. Well, for the five people who haven't stopped listening to this episode because of its <laughs> terrible Sophie-chosen opening, um, this is Behind the Bastards, podcast wow. where we talk about the worst people in history. And this is part two of our series on Basil Zaharoff. And, uh, Teresa, how are you doing in this part two? How are you, how are you feeling?
3: You know, I, I'm feeling a little scared about, you know, the inevitable death of all these people in the story. But, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a brave girl, so I think I, can, I think I can finish listening to this story. Probably won't be able to go to sleep, I mean, but it's a good thing it's the middle of the day.
4: <laughs> I feel like there's some lessons that we can all learn in our own careers from the career of Basil Zaharoff, um, Like, maybe if you're trying to sell a movie... Mm. you 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 should first sell submarines to Turkey and Greece and Russia and spark a naval <laughs> arms race.
3: I should first sell and that will make, movies to uh, different yeah. countries and then sell one to one country and then say do you want two of my movies? I don't know if that would work the same
4: mm-hmm. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think uh I don't. I don't know. What you're saying is, I should scam a rich, selling machine, older woman,
3: out of her money.
4: Yes, absolutely. Pretend to be a Russian prince, and everything
3: Mm -hmm. will be good. I did dye my hair blonde, so I'm halfway to Russian prince. Do Russians have blonde hair? Yes, I think they do. Very close. Some of them. Oh
4: yeah, all of them. Every single Russian. Yeah. Um, no, that was one of the, one of the first things I ever said to you when we met was, um, you should pretend to be a Russian prince and mm-hmm. marry a rich woman and steal mm-hmm. her money and then flee the continent.
3: Yes. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, that's not a lie at all. Yeah. Uh, Robert, no. I only see your like mouth cause your <laughs> top of your face is cut off. Wait. So, oh yeah. Now I see. <laughs> not uh, that it matters, but here, I was I can, just I can, looking at your mustache.
4: screen back. <laughs> Thank you. It's, um, a mustache. Uh, so, before we get back into Basil Zaharoff's career, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the way this man presented himself to the world. Uh, he wore fine suits at all times, and he was known for having a striking mustache. Hmm. He spoke rarely in public and confined himself mostly to shadowy back rooms and salons of the great and good. <laughs> uh, he preferred to speak in a whisper to, uh, and, like, talk to mainly powerful people and never really, like— He was never a guy who was, like, out in public. Like, there, there's no, like, big addresses of this guy. He didn't have, like— um, Uh, uh, a very public life Um, one writer at the time Osbert Sitwell described him as evil and imposing noting his quote beaky face hooded eye wrinkled neck the impression of physical power and the capacity to wait he was an outlook merely a super croupier and once I heard him introducing himself to a millionaire friend of mine with a startling phrase I am Sir Basil Zaharoff. I have 16 millions (laughs) so like like, this is how rich I am a of, yeah, million a, dollars? Some. Yeah, francs, People who want to get me dead? Uh. Yeah. Uh, to his friends, he went by Zed Zed. Uh, to the management at Vickers, <laughs> wait, he was wait, our wait. general wait represent- He went by Zed yeah. Zed? Okay. Yeah, it was his nickname. Cool, cool, What cool. do you call it? What's, okay, what's just your nickname sure. for this guy? Is that who the DJ yeah. Zed is
3: named after? Well, he doesn't know who he is. Yes. <laughs> do you yes.
4: know who that is? Yep. That, I'm, yes, that is exactly the story.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, my gosh. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it's just like I know I know who all of the musicians my fans and uh, guests Zed, talk who about are. Formerly
3: like, dated Selena Gomez. Very briefly, but yeah, we, we, we. Yes, remember. I know who
4: all these people are. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're very convincing, Robert. Uh, thank you. Um. To most other people, yeah, so uh, the management at Vickers called him our general representative abroad, and to most other people in the arms industry who he competed with, he was called the armaments king, Uh, and it was in this last role that he would leave his most uh, enduring mark on the modern world. Uh, finance is boring, so we often ignore matters of debt when we tell the stories of the great wars of the past, but the fact that the Russian Tsar spent the early years of the 20th century signing loan after loan with the French government to pay for his military buildup went on to be one of the most consequential decisions of the 20th century. Mm. Um, So, like, Russia's got to, like, buy $620 million, which is, like, an enormous amount of money back in those days, rebuilding its military, and they just don't have the cash on hand. And the money comes primarily from France, um, and the money comes primarily from France uh, because, like, France is Russia's military ally in this period, and they're kind of trusting that Russia will help them fight Germany if they have to have a war with Germany. Hmm. Yeah, the the fact that Russia accrues uh, hundreds of millions of, of dollars in debt to France would prove really key to the start of the First World War, and we can thank Basil Zaharoff for that. Uh, there were a number of arms manufacturers trying to, like, get the czar to give uh, them his business, uh, including Krupp, the German firm. But Basil had spent half his life pretending to be a Russian prince. And oddly enough, this actually prepared him really well for the job of selling guns to Russia. <laughs> uh, he spoke perfect Russian. Uh, he was a member of the Orthodox Church. Uh, and He'd spent a lot of time in Russia. Uh, and it didn't hurt that his dad had Russified the family's last name. Mm. So at this point in time, France and Germany were kind of like fighting over Russia's friendship. Because like Germany had been Russia's ally before. And like they all wanted Russia on their side. Because Russia like a sixth of the world's landmass. So whoever gets the Russian Empire to back them has a really big advantage in any kind of war in Europe. Um, so while there were a lot of factors that weighed into Russia choosing to stay with France, um, the fact that the country was deeply in debt to the French Republic did not hurt. Uh, and Zakharov's firms wound up winning the lion's share of the Tsarist business, enshrining Basil as the most successful arms dealer on the planet. But the people of France didn't just decide to loan Russia all of that money, um, because like they liked Russians or anything, um yeah, Zaharov convinced them to do it. He owned newspapers in Paris, including one called Excelsior, which he ordered to send out a steady stream of propaganda supporting the cause of loaning more money to Russia. Um and he had a lot of like there were like this wasn't super easy to do because like about a century before, a little less, Uh, France had fought a big bloody war with Russia that had, Mm -hmm. like, killed a shitload of their young men. Um, So there was, like, some bad blood there. So he had to, like, put out a bunch of propaganda to convince them, like, no, it's actually a good idea to give all of your money to Russia to buy a ton of guns. (laughs) Um, so Basil found himself in the position of simultaneously trying to convince the French government to risk lots of money backing Russian rearmament, while also doing everything he could to stop French munitions makers from selling any of their weapons to Russia. So like, hmm. you've got to convince France to give Russia all this money to buy guns, but you also have to convince Russia not to buy any French guns, because like, you want to sell them Right, he
3: wants to sell them. Oh, wow. Hmm.
4: Yeah. So it's kind of a hard trick hat trick to pull as a as a gun salesman but zahiroff pulls it off yeah so he succeeds in like making sure that vickers uh, a firm founded by an american and uh, uh uh like a bunch of british people and run by a greek pretending to be a russian sold arms to the russian empire rather than the country who was actually loaning them the money to buy guns Um, His main competitor for Russia's business was a French firm called Schneider Crusoe. Its head, the eponymous Schneider, wound up dueling Basel for the right to take all of Russia's money. He had his own newspapers, and he planted a story in them that Russia was about to sign a deal with Krupp to let them build factories inside uh, Russia. This was really scary to the people of France because all of the gun plans that Russia had gotten were French. So if Krupp started building Russian arms factories producing French guns, that would effectively mean that Germany was gaining access to all of France's militaries secrets. Mm. Um, none of that was true. It was just a bunch of lies that Schneider put out in newspapers. But it scared French people enough that a lot of them demanded their government loan Russia $25 million to rebuild its railways in exchange for letting Schneider Crusoe build arms factories in uh, in Russia. So all this kind of sketchy dealing is going on with like all of the different companies in the arms trade. And we really don't know much about what Zaharov did or said exactly to Russia. But we know that Vickers, one of the vast majority... Of the different arms contracts that went to Russia, so like even with all this fuckery from Schneider-Crusoe, um, most of the empire's new guns are provided by uh, Vickers through Zaharov. Now. Machine guns and rifles and artillery pieces weren't the only thing that modern armies needed at this point. The 20th century saw the advent of air travel and air war as things. And Basil Zaharoff knew straight away that he wanted to sell planes, too. His first step was to use a small chunk of his fortune to endow a chair of aviation at the Sorbonne. This presumably would give him a highly placed flunky when the French government decided to start buying planes. Unfortunately for Basel, this move attracted controversy, and I'm going to quote an article by John T. Flynn written by uh, – from uh, the Mies uh, Daily, uh, which is a libertarian think tank publication. So these guys actually really like mm. Um Quote, Zaharoff for all his pains to elude this spotlight, found that revealing beam playing upon him at intervals, and to his discomfiture. Who is this Mr. Zaharoff? What is he? To what country does he owe allegiance? He was born in Turkey. He is a Greek. He is a French citizen. He is an English businessman. But what country does he serve, and what sort of game is he playing in France? These were not pleasant questions for one who, indeed, had what Mr. Roosevelt calls a passion for anonymity. So... He starts to, like, get, like, like, the fact that he's endowing chairs at universities and stuff and, like, owning newspapers in France gets people really suspicious about his intentions. Mm. Uh, and so he has to quiet those intentions by, like, buying, uh, basically he buys a convalescent home for old French soldiers and donates to a bunch of French causes and becomes, like, a, a, a philanthropist so that people don't think that there's something shady about all the guns he's trying to get other countries to buy.
3: Wait, so he was more anonymous before, but now he's putting his name on all these, like, buildings and stuff?
4: Yeah, he has to mm-hmm. in order to like, because to be there starts to be like, questions about him. Like Rockefeller type
3: of thing. Just yeah,
4: like, yeah, okay. he does it to bribe France into liking him. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's cool. Um,
3: <laughs> yeah, it's cool.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's what you do. I mean, it's kind of what Rockefeller did. Like that's, yeah. what, uh, that's that's what it is to like be a philanthropist is you're usually trying to stop people from thinking too much about how you made all the money that you can
3: mm-hmm. donate. Yeah, it just becomes a, uh, you just want a building that tourists go take an elevator up to and look around. That's Mm -hmm. when you know you've made it, when your name is on a Mm -hmm. building like that.
4: Yeah, or all of the wonderful public parks provided by the Raytheon Corporation. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
4: -hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, this sort of palm greasing accompanied Bezels plotting in nations around the world. Uh, Vickers' plants soon cropped up in Canada, Italy, Africa, uh, Greece, Turkey, Russia, New Zealand, Ireland, and Holland. Uh, they made machine guns and cannons and ships, but also brand new warplanes, um, some of the ones that were like just being bought up by European powers. When sales would slump, Zaharov would use his press organs to pump more stories into the media about, say, France's rival's arming. So if he notices sales are slumping, then he'll try to drum up fear that there's a war in Europe happening, uh, or that's about to happen. So, like, people will start demanding that their country buy more guns. Uh, now, since Vickers was ostensibly a British company, the British government was happy to help Zaharov by using their own soft power to bribe and cajole foreign nations into buying British guns. Sometimes the agreement to allow Vickers came with direct military aid from the British Empire. The Royal Navy itself was for sale, provided that, like, the company... Buying guns uh, from Vickers sent enough money back to the English economy to make it worthwhile. So, like, he's basically using the British. Like, he gets to use the British military as, like, um, like, 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 if you buy enough guns from us, like, we'll send in our boats to help you what? do shit, like, because the yeah, it's a bunch of money for England, yeah. So. Uh, frustratingly, there's very little specific information on individual acts of bribery that Zahirov may or may not have carried out because he burnt all of his records um, Mm. when he was an old man. Um, And the British government isn't about to correct the record. Um, But there were folks at the time who paid attention to what Basil, his fellow arms dealers, were doing to Europe and the rest of the world. And some of them had the courage to speak up. And I'm going to quote now from Basil's biography, Man of Arms, again. On March 18, 1914, on the very brink of the coming disaster, Philip Snowden, disease-racked, crippled socialist labor leader, rose in commons to make a speech. When he had done, he had rocked the British Empire with his disclosures. For two years, a young Quaker socialist named Walton Newbold had been tracing with infinite pains the torturous trail of the international arms makers. And Philip Snowden had in his possession the fruits of that long quest when he rose to speak. One by one, he pointed out cabinet ministers, members of the House, and named high-ranking officials in army and navy circles, persons of royal position, who were large Holders and shares of Vickers and Armstrong, and John Brown and Beardmore, shipbuilders. The profits of Vickers and Armstrong had been enormous, and the most powerful persons in the state and church and the nobility had bought into them to share in the profits. Vickers had among its director two dukes, two marquesses, two family members of 50 earls, 15 baronets and five knights, 21 naval officers, two naval government architects, and many journalists. Armstrong had even more 60 earls or their wives, 15 baronets and 20 knights, 20 military or naval architects and officers. While there were 13 members, of the House of Commons on the directorates of Vickers, Armstrong, or John Brown. It would be impossible, said Snowden, to throw a handful of pebbles anywhere upon the opposition benches without hitting members interested in these arms firms. Ministers, officers, technical experts moved out of the government, out of the Navy, the Army, the War Office, the Admiralty, into the employ of the munitions manufacturers. Snowden quoted Lord Welby, head of the Civil Service, who only a few weeks before had denounced the arms conspirators. We are in the hands of an organization of crooks, said Lord Welby. They are politicians, generals, manufacturers, Manufacturers of armaments and journalists. All of them are anxious for unlimited expenditure and go on inventing scares to terrify the public and terrify the ministers of the crown. So part of how Zaharov and not just him, these other arms companies, get away with what they're doing um, is that they hire, like they'll hire these like, members of the nobility, members mm-hmm. of the government, um, or convince them to buy stocks that these people profit too. And that's why he can convince the British government to send the Royal Navy into companies that buy from his firm is because like these guys have a vested interest too. And so they're basically spending public money to make themselves money, um, by like drumming up more arms sales. So that's cool.
3: Dang. That's like, uh, wait, how, who's this informant? Like, uh, was he, how how did he know all this? Like, is he just a guy who was like, he was a jerk. Yeah. Part of yeah, it
4: was this Quaker, yeah, this mm. Quaker, like, socialist activist who just, like, slowly would start tracing, like, basically, like, starting with, like, stock sales and stuff. Like, who's buying up interest in all these firms? And his last and name found was out, Snowden? Like...
3: No relation to Edward Snowden?
4: No, no, Snowden's <laughs> the, Snowden is a socialist uh, labor leader who, like, makes a speech using oh, this guy, the stuff that this gotcha. other guy found. But, yeah. yeah, it is weird that, like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it is another Snowden. So, yeah. Um, from 1877 to 1914 a cadre of arms dealers spearheaded by Basil Zaharoff, who was the most successful of them bribed a succession of admirals, generals high ranking politicians um, and nobility from all of the great powers of Europe Krupp employed hundreds of people who received salaries without doing any actual work provided they were willing to put in a good word to their government ministries when Krupp needed it one German armament maker at the time admitted for some families Krupp factories are a great sinecure where nephews and poor relations of officials whose influence." War is Great find themselves jobs. In 1913, the year before Snowden made that speech, Dr. Karl Liebknecht, a socialist leader in Germany's Reichstag, gave a similar speech uncoiling massive corruption within the German Ministry of War. It resulted in the trial and conviction of several ministry officials who were found to be agents of Krupp. In Japan, another scandal was involved with the German arms firm Siemens Schuckert, who was found to have paid out more than half a million modern dollars in bribes to Japanese officials to guarantee them the contract to build a massive battleship. And these give us an idea of the kind of stuff Basil himself would have engaged in. Um, But in general, we only catch glimpses of him during this period, as Smithsonian Magazine summarizes. Quote, he appears sporadically in the Vickers Papers, now at Cambridge University Library, and increasingly in the British Foreign Office archives. These sources allow us to trace ZZ's increasing wealth and status. Between 1902 and 1905, he was paid £195,000 on commissions, worth $25 million today. And by 1914, he was active not only in Istanbul and Athens, but in St. Petersburg, Buenos Aires, and Asuncion. Uh, he owned several banks, lived in a French chateau, and was romancing the Duchess of Villafranca, a Spanish noblewoman who would become his third wife. They are not... They, so, yeah, like, this is part of what's frustrating about writing about this guy. like, we don't know specifically what he did. We know that, like, because, like, the people who... The people who were, like, bribing public officials that we know about in this time were the ones who weren't as good as Zaharov. Because mm, they that got he caught. He was doing more of this... Yeah, because they got caught. But, like, what happens in Europe, and this is something we don't talk about much when we talk about World War One. but a big part of why that war happened is that the leadership of... Every country involved like, had personal financial stakes in the mass sale of mm-hmm. weapons and armaments, which also led to them buying more guns and scaring each other with all the guns they were buying, which led them to get angrier at each other, which increased the belligerence between the nations. And it was all basically to sell a shitload of guns to profit, like these arms manufacturers and the people that they bribed in government.
3: So you're saying um, it's like so a, a powder cool. keg? Uh, I went to middle school. I yeah. remember <laughs> the little yeah, diagram you have to draw. You know, it's like World War One is a powder yeah. keg. Oh my God. I remember yeah. them
4: forever. <laughs> but it's a powder keg that, like, I, I think it's usually put that, like, there are these, like, that, that a huge part of it was, like, I don't know, like.
3: Right. They didn't uncover the, all this. the the sinister underneath.
4: I mean, some of it was known at the time, like particularly like a lot of socialist politicians at the time were like, the arms industry owns all of our governments and are like Mm. clearly lurching us towards a horrible war. Somebody should do something about this. But nobody did anything about it. So that's- I mean, that doesn't sound like anything familiar. Like the world lurching towards clear disaster and uh, yeah, a small number of people think being of like,
3: "What that that reminds me of something, but I I can't quite yeah. put a finger on it." Hmm.
4: Yeah. Thankfully, it just it a, never happened again.
3: Just a general sense of dread. Uh, what is what does that yeah. remind me
4: of? Something
3: going on today? No. Hmm, I can't think of it. You
4: know what'll assuage <laughs> your general sense of dread, Teresa? What? products and services. Because if I know something that has nothing at all to do with corrupt arms companies (sighs) buying politicians and using them to bring the world closer and closer to disaster, it's beautiful, beautiful, sweet lady capitalism. (laughs) So let's calm our souls with a little bit more of that.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
4: On average, it takes about 30 days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So, if saving money was on your 2024 list, your odds aren't looking that great. Luckily, you have a 100% guaranteed way to save you money this year. Just switch to Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. If you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data on the nation's largest 5G network. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. So switch to Mint Mobile and get your first three months of premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for fifteen bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at Mintmobile.com slash behind. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. And we're back. So we don't know exactly what Zaharoff did in most cases, but there is bits and pieces of there are bits and pieces of evidence here, and the documentary evidence that survives suggests that the chief value he brought to Vickers was his un, I, instinctive understanding of when and to whom he should offer bribes. Um, so he was like one of the guys who was basically getting members of Parliament, getting like all these royal people to like get involved with Vickers and make themselves like have a financial interest in the success of his company. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote gleeful memos that told of doing the needful and administering doses of Vickers to various <laughs> prominent people in England. Foreign office records showed that in 1912, Zahirov was instrumental in passing 100,000 rubles to officers in Russia's Ministry of the Marine in order to divert government contracts to a local shipbuilding group in which Vickers had an interest. Mm-hmm. At the same time, for reasons that remain obscure but can be guessed at, Vickers also won a contract to supply light machine guns to the Russian army, despite the fact that its bid was 50% more expensive than one submitted by a local Russian company. There is reason to suppose that in the latter's case, Zahirov's charm and easy way with women was at least as helpful as his money. Um, one historian, William Fuller, suggests that he made particularly effective use of his association with the ballerina uh, Kashinskaya who after losing her place as a mistress, took up with Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich Inspector General of the Russian Artillery. So, some of, like, he succeeds in basically, like, getting Russia to buy a bunch of guns from him for way more money than a local Russian firm wants to sell them for. Because
3: he was dating a ballerina?
4: <laughs> yeah, he's dating a ballerina who's also fucking the Grand Duke of Russia. Um, Good for her. Which is, you know, yeah. Poking again. More poking than It's <laughs> like his arms race
3: is like a, a delicate ballet.
4: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so the individual acts Basil took during this period are less important than the impact his strategies and tactics had on the broader climate in Europe. World War I was most directly a product of the armament schedules of the various nations of Europe. Um, so like once like Germany realized that like, OK, there was a conflict, you know, happening over between Austria and Serbia and it's going to pull in Russia and it's going to pull in France. They knew that they had, like, only a certain amount of time to mobilize their troops and get their army ready. And everyone else in Europe knew that, too. So it was this kind of thing that, like, once everyone starts mobilizing for war, you really have to continue because any delay can mean you lose the war because you don't have your reserves and shit mm-hmm. ready in time. Um, and the system Zaharov developed had ensured that each of these great powers had obsessively scheduled updates to for their weaponry, their ships, their cannons, and their aircraft. And the varying levels to which all of these different militaries were updated played a huge role in the war calculus that drove the decision making in August 1914. Um, So like, basically, he's got like, all of these different countries are being convinced to update their weapons and buy new fancier guns and new fancier planes and stuff and new fancier cannons at different times. And all of the other powers know this. So like Germany in 1914 is in this position where they realize like they have the most advanced army in Europe by their calculus, but Russia is rearming because Zaharov mm. has got them to buy a bunch of guns and France is rearming and so they're like, if we don't get involved, like, fight a war right now with both of these countries. In another five or six years, they'll have bought new guns, and their guns will be better than ours, and then we won't have a chance of winning this war. So, like, because of this this kind of armament schedule that Zaharov helps to create, Germans – Ger, like, if you look at, like, the internal documents, like, German officers like von Moltke, who's in charge of their military at the time, are writing each other during the July crisis – they call it a preventative war, and the thing they're trying to prevent is Germany getting lo- losing a fight against France and Russia because, like, Russia's buying all these guns from Vickers, and they're, like, soon they're going to actually be able to beat us if we don't fight them right now. It's like, so when I, like a really d- I feel like that's, yeah. like, when
3: I break up with someone because I don't want them to break up with me later. So I'm, like, I'll do it now yeah. even though things are good, but, like, later I'll be sad if you break up with me.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. And I, I think we all remember uh that breakup you had that led to by yeah, One on thousands yep. of French and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's. Um so yeah, uh so that's cool, right? Um, so yeah, basically <laughs> yeah, like cool. von Moltke and the uh, the German general staff thought that 1914 was like the last year they could beat both France and Russia in a war. Hmm. Um, the Saxon military attache in Berlin in July 1914 uh, noted this about the German commander, quote, I had the impression that the general staff would be pleased if war were to come about now. Conditions and prospects would never be better for us. Victor Naumann, a journalist writing in Germany at the time, noted the same thing. There is considerable uneasiness in Berlin over Russian armaments and the test mobilization of considerable Russian forces, not only in army and navy circles, but also in the foreign ministry. The idea of preventative war is regarded with less disapproval than a year ago. So there's like a really direct line between the fact that Zaharov convinces it like sells so many guns to Russia gets France to loan them all this money and the fact that uh World War 1 starts like it, it's it convinces the Germans that they have to fight right now.
3: That that wording too like less disapproval is also like a lot of propaganda because it's spinning like there's disapproval but it's less disapproval instead yeah. of just being like they approve. No, it's just slightly less disapproval.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um so, yeah, uh, while well, l- Europe lurched from crisis to crisis in the final years and months uh, leading up to World War I, uh, Basel continued to blissfully sell arms all around the world. Uh, prior to World War I, when war broke out between Greece, Turkey, and some of the Ottoman Empire's rebellious uh, European possessions, this was in 1912, Basel took the extraordinary step of funding the Greek war effort to the tune of two and a half million francs in order to ensure a Greek victory. Um, it's not clear if there was, like, a financial motivation to this as well, or if he was, like, just patriotic, but the Ottoman Empire's embarrassing defeat helped push them closer to Germany and contributed to the ratcheting up of global tensions. Now, stoking global war was not the only thing Basel got up to during this period. In 1889, during a tour around Europe, uh, he met Maria del Pilar Antonia Angela uh, Patosinio Simona de Muguero, he, I'm just pre- she, the Duchess of Villafraga, He meets the uh-huh. Spanish noblewoman. <laughs> With so many fucking names. Um, and Basil strikes up a romantic relationship with her that allowed him to sell millions of dollars in guns to the Spanish army as well. Mm. Um, now, this was not purely a mercenary endeavor, though. Zaharov seems to have legitimately fallen in love with the Duchess. And he begged her to divorce her husband, arguing that since her husband was dying and de- suffering from dementia, like, what did it really matter if they got divorced? But the Duchess uh, was Catholic, and she was not willing to get divorced, although she was willing to cheat on her husband. So... <laughs> I, I guess do the moral math there uh, The things two are different together. in Europe
3: okay it's much looser that, yeah. out there
4: yeah I can't divorce my husband because it'll make God angry but we can fuck <laughs> for 30 years <laughs> yeah Um, so Basil and the Duchess were together for decades, um, and everyone kind of knew it, but just, like, agreed not to talk about it, because I guess that's just how you did things back then. Um, her husband was declared insane and locked up in a mental asylum. Uh, he survived 35 years, um, which none of them expected, um, and really frustrated Basil because he and his mistress had to, like, hide their relationship at least a little bit for most of this period, um but to Basil's credit he seems to have actually loved this woman and the two were together for the rest of their lives. Um so Ooh. that's cool. He She's like the Sunni love. to his yeah. Woody
3: Allen. Ooh.
4: Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't steal from her, so that's nice. <laughs> um Yeah. So, um yeah, Basil yeah, I, I mean he uh, he he's he's a big part of why World War 1 starts and kind of the the impact of his like the shit that he pulls prior to the war, like the, the, the particular, like the fact that, uh, Russia winds up in like tremendous debt to France, um, winds up having an impact beyond just the first world war. Um, so like, you, you Russia, by the time, like, you you know, World War One nineteen seventeen 1917, like, there's a big revolution in Russia, and the Tsar is very soon out of power. And one of the reasons that this happens is because of all of the debt that Russia owed to France. Like, that was mm-hmm. one of the big talking points of the Bolsheviks and the socialists when they, like, overthrew the government. It's like the Tsar had mortgaged their company to France to buy better guns, and that had forced them to get involved in this war that had killed hundreds of thousands of their young men. Um, and you can kind of trace a lot of that to Zaharov. Um, So, like, as far back as 1905, the Bolshevik councils had demanded repudiation of all of Russia's foreign debts, um, and this demand formed a centerpiece for the strikes in St. Petersburg that happened in 1905, Um, and those strikes uh, spread around the empire along with the demand for debt repudiation, and then they were crushed brutally by the Russian government, which was, again, one of the major causes, you know, one of the things that helped inspire the, the Russian Revolution. Uh, so on December 3rd, 1905, Tsarist authorities arrested the entire Soviet leadership for publishing a manifesto urging debt repudiation. The revolution that sparked off in 1917 was based on a lot of grievances and crimes by the Tsarist regime. But the fact that the future of the Russian people had basically been like sold to France for pointless guns for a stupid war was a big part of them. And it also played a role in the fact that, like, the most extreme faction wound up winning the Civil War. The Tsar initially, like, gave up power to a moderate socialist movement led by a guy named Kerensky, and this provisional government was crippled by the fact that it both had to carry on World War I and it had to pledge to repay the debts contracted by the Tsarist regime. So because Kerensky had to agree that Russia was going to keep paying off its debts to France, um, like, that's a big part of why there's a revolution against him in October of 1917 which leads to the takeover of the Bolsheviks who in 1918 repudiated all Russian debt to its foreign creditors. Now, mm. the fact that the Bolsheviks in charge had decided they're just not going to pay France back pisses off a lot of people, particularly France. And this contributes to the French decision to blockade Russia and back up the white Russian forces. This prolongs the Russian Civil War, killing more Russians than World War I actually did. Uh, and it also ensures that the Bolsheviks who, remained, who emerged victorious from the war were like even more pissed at these Western countries because they were like, well, you guys extended this horribly brutal war, um, and like, j- like just so we'd pay you back for these guns that like you conned us into buying in the first place. Um,
3: Isn't that how, like, it, yeah. doesn't the America owe China a bunch of money? Not necessarily for weapons, but aren't we kind of de- yeah, dig ourselves into a hole sure. like that, too.
4: I mean, we owe more money to our own people. Like, it's, I, I guess, it, I think it's like, but we have a- It's different. Def- deficit?
3: Yeah. We sure do. We de- did it. Deficit. They lent us a bunch of money. I remember like loaning us yeah. in high school. and It's so much that we're never going to pay them back. And I think it's kind of understood that at some point it'll just be fair or we're just going to have to do what they say because it's so much that we can't pay back.
4: Word. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit different now because like money's not- Real now? Sure it was Like, yeah, like yeah, back yeah, then mm-hmm. everything's well, like really backed up by gold rent, or but, civil. Know, it's not civil. real to yeah.
3: my country, I guess.
4: No, it like it isn't really real. Like you like you'll notice nobody even fucking talks about the deficit anymore. Yeah. Like, it sure. used to be like our national debt was this big deal and now we just pretend it's not a thing. And now we're
3: like, just kidding. Um
4: yeah, it's like if you go to the hospital and wind up owing 10 million dollars in medical debt and it's just like, well, I'm never paying this. Like I work at the Sparrow, like what do you what do you want? Um, but like back then like all of the the all of these like uh, currencies are back are are like based on gold and silver uh-huh. and stuff. So like there is like an expectation of real repayment. Um True. and Like, it's a horrible burden to the Russian peasantry because, like, the rich people of Russia aren't going to pay all of that money. Like, they're the ones who made these deals so that they could get more money because these arms companies are bribing them. Um, So, like, yeah, Basil, like, when you try to trace out, like, the impact of this guy, like, it's in a bunch of stuff. He helps lead the world into World War II, which, like, 20 million people die in. But he also plays a significant role in helping to inspire at least parts of the Russian Civil War and helping to inspire, like, like, the the debts that Russia owes lead to, like, protests and stuff that are cracked down on brutally by the Tsar, which is one contributing factor to the Civil War. And then once the Civil War happens, they help to ensure that the most extreme people get into power, um, and then help also ensure that, like, the European powers, Russia owes money to back up the other side in the Civil War, which kills hundreds of thousands of people. And, like, Basil had a huge impact on that but he also got to completely ignore it because he's just a rich guy living in Europe he already made his fucking money he doesn't give a shit like he made his he made he got his cut of the deal already he doesn't lose anything because Russia's not paying back his debts like he's fucking fine um, and he was fine with World War one he made a fuckload of money in World War one um, and he basically got to not really work all that hard during the war. Um, because you don't have to work hard to sell guns to countries in the middle of the biggest war in history. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to sell guns there. So what you're saying is he
3: almost wanted a war? Um.
4: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in fact, once the war was going, it was very much in his interest to prolong the bloodletting and, yeah, make the war happen uh, even longer. So at the start of hostilities, the Imperial German Army had captured a place called the Brié Basin, um, and they'd routed two French armies to do it for good reason. Brié included massive quantities of iron ore, and Germany didn't have a whole lot of iron in, like, its own borders. So Brié became a linchpin of the German war effort. Without the iron there, they would not have been able to fight World War One more than about six months. So they capture all of this, like— iron ore in these blast furnaces and stuff. Uh-huh. But all of it's within the range of French artillery. So what would you think if you're France, oh Germany's got this place that like they cannot fight the war if they can't get iron out of it and we can blow it all up. You'd think they'd blow it all up, right? Seems like kind of a no-brainer from a military point of view. Uh-huh. They don't shell it at all during the war. Huh. And the reason they don't shell it at all is Basil Zaharoff because Basil's like, well, this is a bunch of money like once the war is over i could make a lot of money from the iron foundries here like i don't want you guys blowing that stuff up so he he basically finds himself in this position of having to convince france not to do the thing that could allow them to win the war in six months (laughs) and when we come back we're going to talk about how he did that but first if you need to win a war against germany in six months (laughs) the only way to do it is with the products and services that support this podcast We're back. So, um, yeah. Uh, Basil Zahirov. Um So, Basil is trying to convince, like, finds himself in this position of, like, needing to convince France not to blow up this place that would allow them to win the war and make Germany's effort basically impossible. Um, and... The way he does this is through a friendship he has with a guy named Robert Pinot, who's one of the leaders of, like, the French government's armaments effort. So he's, like, one of the people responsible for arming the French military during this war. Uh, Pinot warns him that French generals were agitating to bomb Brier, um, because they're like, we want to win this war because we're generals, and this is the easiest way to do it. Um, And, yeah, uh, Basil uh, basically—I'm going to read a quote from the book Man of Arms that describes what he did next. At Pinot's request, Zaharov took informal soundings from the German industrialists in Thionville, while at the same time putting up an alternative blockade plan to French headquarters. This was that the installations at Briey should be left intact, but that attacks should be launched instead on the railways. General uh, military immediately and violently contested this option. The preference may have reflected the special interests of the committee. The ultimate decision, however, lay with the ministers individually and the cabinet collectively, after taking into consideration the advice of their military advisors and service chiefs. They neither pressed it nor resigned. and disagreement. The same French source put another gloss on this affair. Towards the end of 1916, Lloyd George sought Zaharov's advice on the chance of securing a token withdrawal of troops on both sides of the front on New Year's Day, an appeal which Zaharoff, with his customary agility, distorted <laughs> into a mutual agreement between the Allies and the Central Powers to respect each other's arms factories. Lloyd George, according to this version, finally concurred with Zaharoff's viewpoint and agreed it would be senseless to destroy industrial plants and to end the war with derelict factories and mass unemployment." So, yeah, um, so it's, like, yeah, so he not only, like, basically, like, tries to push this plan to have France, like, send thousands of young men to their deaths trying to attack German railways instead of just shelling these iron foundries— um, but, like, later in the war, in, like, 1916, when he's, like, asked to try and secure, like, a withdrawal from both sides on New Year's Day to give, like, the soldiers, like, to ratchet down tensions and give the soldiers a break, he's like, no, 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 no. They should keep shooting at each other. But, like, what we should really do is make an international agreement to not destroy any arms factories because, I don't, I, I, yeah.
3: That's so crazy.
4: Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Um, So, yeah, while millions of young men were, like, dashing themselves to death against machine gun nests and artillery emplacements, Basil Zaharoff dedicated himself to protecting what really mattered, the industrial facilities that made those weapons. (laughs) Uh, He he was deeply trusted by men at the heights of power on the Allied side, and he acted as a go-between for King George V, Lloyd George, who was, like, the guy in charge of England, and the French Prime Minister, Clemenceau. Um, the Earl of Derby, uh, the British ambassador to France, wrote that there is no man living in whom more people can fight in than him. And while it's impossible to say exactly what impact his personal influence had on the war, Lord Derby was convinced that Basil Zaharoff had a vested interest in making the war go on as long as possible. <laughs> Gee, in June I of think... 1917... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in June of 1917, he wrote in his journal, "Zaharoff is all for continuing the war to the end. So, like... We don't know exactly what he did. And this is part of the frustrating thing. It's, like, hard to say, like, he said to the king, you know, do this or that. Because, like, nobody keeps track of these conversations Mm -hmm. between these world leaders and their friend. But we know he really wants the war to go on long. And he's a voice in all these people's ears. Um, Yeah. So, uh, he did make one attempt to secure... Peace uh, in 1917, Uh, He kind of. He was sent by (laughs) Lloyd George to try and bring Greece into the war on the Allied side and to try to convince the Ottoman Empire to defect from Germany. He was given 10 million pounds worth of solid gold to try to bribe this into being. But unfortunately for Basil, he only made it as far as Switzerland. Uh, I'm going to quote from Smithsonian Magazine now. His reputation preceded him. Intercepted at the border, he was humiliatingly strip-searched and left standing in sub-zero temperatures for more than an hour by the border police. In the end, his intrigues came to nothing, but that did not stop him writing to the British government to demand, chocolate for ZZ, his coy reference to the major honor he craved. So let's say he's asking for, like, an award. He's like, I I would like, ZZ would like some chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. So this really disgusts, King George V, who, like, at this point is at least enough of a human being to be, like, s- millions of young men have died, and, like, look at the kind of, like, wh- the mm-hmm. kind of shit you're saying. But he grudgingly recommends Zed for a grand knight cross, which finally uh-huh. enabled Zaharov to style himself Sir Basil for the first time in his life oh, no. with some sort of justification. So he's so just he like does get to be He's just like a noble. little
3: child whining like I want a prize. Yeah. Like I, you didn't say good job yeah. to me after I failed at that thing you wanted me to do.
4: Yeah, 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 I want a prize for like failing to secure peace. I want a participation trophy and helping to start it. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, World War I ends in 1918, uh, and this is good news for human beings, but bad news for weapons companies, because mm-hmm. you're going to buy a lot fewer guns after this war. Um, and when the fighting ended, the arms industry contracted massively. Uh, Basil, though, was still very wealthy and influential, and he bought his way into being part owner of Monte Carlo, the famous <laughs> resort and casino. However, his chief interest continued to be in the movement and destinies of nations. From 1920 to 1922, Basil got deeply involved in the Greco-Turkish War over Smyrna, um, and this is uh, we talk about this a little bit in the Savitri Devi episode. But basically, like Greece, in a treaty uh, in the Treaty of Versailles, is given this like chunk of land on the Turkish coast, and they have to send in troops to actually take it, and mm. Turkey fights back, and eventually the Allies like uh, abandon Greece, and Greece like loses the war, and there's a horrible genocide. Um, And there are rumors that Basil himself entirely funded the Greek war effort, their attempt to invade Turkey. Um, there's no hard evidence of this, but it's one of the stories everyone will say is that like he funded this war that Greece fights against Turkey. We just really don't know. Mm. The war was a disaster for Greece though. And it was a disaster for Zahirov's political backers like Lloyd George. So he had, like Zahirov was a major part of the reason that like they got this land in the Treaty of Versailles and he was like pushing the English and whatnot to back Greece in this war. And when it ends badly for Greece, it's really bad for all of like the people that, give Zaharov his influence, and it's bad mm. for his influence, too, because he's made a big fuck-up. In the mid-1920s, Vickers began to encounter increasing financial difficulties. In a Europe exhausted by war, nations just weren't buying guns at the same apocalyptic level they once had. Krupp had been killed by Allied demands uh, that they destroy all of their arms-producing equipment, but the death of Vickers's greatest competitor did not help the company out. Uh, they were forced to massively reorganize and cut costs just to stay in business. Their stock price dropped by two-thirds. And since Basil was the largest stockholder in Vickers, this severely impacted his net worth, and he was slowly shuffled out of any position of power within the company by 1925. In 1927, the managers of the reorganized firm presented Basil with an award for his 50 years of service with the company. It was a balm designed to hide the fact that they'd removed him from any position of influence. (laughs) On September 22nd, (laughs) Uh, ha. have this fucking award you like awards ha. use some chocolate for Zed Zed yeah so on September 22nd 1924 uh, Basil Zaharoff had married uh, his duchess after nearly 40 years together because her husband died in that insane asylum uh, but she didn't outlive him for very long 18 months later she died and this basically spelled oh, the man. end for Basil yeah he was never the same after his wife died he does seem to have loved this woman Um, And in 1927, he burns all of his papers and notebooks and all of the evidence of his long and bloody career as the most successful arms dealer in world history goes up in smoke. The king of armaments survived until 1936, but over the next decade, he grew sicker and less mobile, eventually being wheeled around by servants as he did his rounds at Monte Carlo. He died sick and marginalized, with his vast fortune much depleted. There's no way to know how much money he was really worth, but his liquid known assets at death were only around a million modern dollars.
3: Only a billion dollars. Yeah. What a fucking A million, loser. a million. A million with a million. Oh, a million. Wow. I mean, like, wow, that's just, what a fucking loser. I mean, who doesn't have a million dollars, right? Am I right?
4: Yeah. 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 I mean, you don't feel sorry for this guy that he only dies with a million (laughs) dollars? Robert, all I hear is this is a rom-com that ended in a very
3: happy marriage and that he, you said he loved her. So, you know, that's all I need to hear. Most (laughs) rom-coms, people fuck up and it doesn't matter how they fuck up as long as there's a kiss at the end. So that's what I heard.
4: I mean, it... If there's one thing I've learned from modern politics, it's that just because somebody starts a couple of wars and gets a couple of million people killed doesn't mean you shouldn't root for them to be – have friends and live a happy life, you know? It's like, like – so what if Basil Zaharoff like, got all those people killed? Like, don't you want him to – I don't know, take up painting and, and make neat paintings of, like, world leaders or something? Like, isn't that – Shouldn't we forgive people like this?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the record, because uh, I, I feel like people don't know me as well as they know you. Um, I hundred <laughs> percent do not do not think that. Um, but you know, but uh, yeah. I, I do think uh, I do think this guy is bad, and I I think he's burning in hell if you believe in hell. Mm. But it, I, if you don't, it, then he's just um, he's just dust.
4: Then he mm. completely won. Yeah. If you don't believe in hell, like, it, 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 then he's he got away scot-free, basically, with mm-hmm. uh, millions and millions, contributing to millions of deaths. hmm So, on that happy note, <laughs> you know who won't contribute to millions of deaths?
3: Are you gonna say me? Teresa
4: Lee. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs>
3: time to plug oh wow okay mm-hmm. well I promise yeah. to not strip you of millions uh, I promise I'll never have a million dollars that's a promise I can keep um, I you can follow me at Larisa T L-E-R-E-S-A T-E-E on Instagram and Twitter yay
4: and my call to all of you is to prove uh, Teresa wrong and give her a million
5: dollars yeah um,
4: and then she will sell armaments and spark mm-hmm. the next great world war I feel confident of that
3: Okay, if you give me a million dollars, I will do my best to start a war. (laughs) Yeah.
4: So, um, we are back. uh, Or we're done. We're not back. We're about to go away.
2: (laughs) What he means is he's doing a live show
3: with Billy Wayne Davis in Los Angeles on March 8th at Dynasty Typewriter. Buy tickets if you haven't already. He also means that he is IWriteOK on Twitter. You should follow him. And you should follow our podcast at Spot on Twitter and Instagram did i forget anything did i forget anything robert oh we have a t public store uh, yes merch. what
2: else
4: yes uh by raytheon's fine missiles filled <laughs> with knives yeah the only missiles filled but with no. knives anything else oh, you still should anything nope
3: else? great episodes nope. over
4: <laughs> podcast
0: National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry
5: Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car.